Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Anne and Peter Haig. I suppose what I should have said was top of the morning to you, but I want to make sure, um, even though I'm wishing you happy St. Patrick's Day, that I don't want to be guilty of cultural appropriation. But then again, they say on, on March 17th, everybody's Irish. I don't know about that, but my Sicilian ancestors might not like that one. And they're pretty pretty big about it in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh claims to have the the second largest St. Patrick's Day parade in the the world, I think. And the only one that's bigger is New York. I'm not sure. We've been in New York on St. Patrick's Day, and the parade there is really big. It's huge. Absolutely huge. You can't get across the... And, the there's, and there's a lot of Irish in Boston and Chicago as well. So I, would, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a little bit of local exaggeration. But, yeah. but, any, but anyway. But at any rate, we're, we're, we're trying to bring on the spirit, to you... On the spirit I, of things Irish, which is what's going to be in today's program, what, how, do we, how are we kicking off, sweetheart? Well, we're starting with um, Dorina Allen, who is... Um, it, the Allens are, are the, the central force in Ballymaloo, which is the... Original cooking school and property gardens. Oh, it's such a lovely place. Arena, we'll talk about it a little bit. Anyhow, her new book is um, simply delicious. The classic collection. So she's looked back over all of the Ballymaloo's uh, menus and history and the books she's written and se- selected the ones she thought were representative and the most vibrant. And the great part about it is for a relatively small cost, you can get all of them in one book. We're going to be talking to one of our favorite cookbook authors and and cooker, period, uh, Darina Allen. Um, Darina, you've headed up Ballymaloo Cooking School for how many years? Oh, my goodness me. It was started in 1983, September 1983. Okay. Uh, we started, and um, uh, and literally, <laughs> at that stage, I suppose, Ireland was looked on as the, as the land of corned beef and cabbage. So, come literally from all over the world. So, at the moment here now, uh, we have 11 nationalities here in the school at the moment. We operate the whole year round, and this is a 12-week course. It's sort of a really intensive course for people who would like to get the skills to earn their living from their cooking. So it's lovely that, uh, and of course the school is in the middle of a, of a hundred acre organic farm. I love so that. a lot of people want, yeah, a lot of people want to be able to see how their food is produced from your very, uh, well-known phrase in America, the, from the farm to the fork. So that's, um, uh, that's, we love that, that we can produce so much and grow so much of our own food. Yeah. I have for a, them to cook with. I have a picture on our website of the salad. The, the 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 class was making the day, <laughs> yeah, the day we visited that. for lunch, and it, and it's described as the world's most beautiful salad. <laughs> oh, oh, that's very sweet. Well, um, uh, probably I can't see it, of course, from where I am, but uh, probably with lots of big variety of lettuces and salad leaves and and some edible flowers. Probably. Absolutely, you, you can you can actually look at it if you if you go to OTM pictures in pictures on our website. And scroll down through there, you'll find it. Yeah, I'll find it. Well, that's yeah. that's lovely. Thank you. Get, yeah. get, get your assistant to find it. There are a lot of pictures. <laughs> yeah, Darina. Uh, no, um, you also. Uh, I, I don't want to ask you the number in case I'm asking. I'm, 
you, this is not your first cookbook. Let's put it that way. <laughs> How well, many? now I think this is my 17th cookbook, oh, actually, yeah. this one. Uh, and I've just actually sent another one uh, called One Pot Feeds All into my oh, publisher's no. octopus. So uh, this has been quite the year. Well, it, mm-hmm. I mean, since we saw all the activities since we were at Ballymaloo, and you're a very busy lady. I don't know quite how you find the time to do all of these things. Um, but now we, we're looking at your latest publication, which is called Simply Delicious, the Classic Collection. Subtitled, 100 Timeless Tried and Tested Recipes. Now, this is a very special, very special uh, revival, Peter called it, of recipes and and the series Simply Delicious. Tell us what this book is. Well, indeed it is, because um, I suppose in 1986 I was asked by uh, RTE, our Irish uh, television station here, radio uh, and television station, and to do uh, a, a, t- a television series. And we, I did a series. I did. I think I did nine of these series in the end. But basically, it was cooking, and they were called simply delicious because the recipes um, that I chose were sort of pared back recipes that were simple to cook and absolutely delicious to eat. Encouraging people to use fresh food and to buy. I mean. All the things that one talks about now, uh, to, to look and see what was growing in your own area uh, and uh, to cook it simply and, uh, you know, uh, and then sit down around the kitchen table with your family and friends and enjoy it. And originally they were little paperback books. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah. So then, a, of course, uh, I was asked to do a book with it. So the little paperback book was, uh, again, about 90-something recipes in them. And they um, literally, this, I mean, this is not a boast. It's just a fact uh, that first uh, cookbook, Simply Delicious, first one, um, and some, many of the others afterwards, Simply Delicious Christmas and so on as well, they made Irish publishing history, can you imagine? Yes. Uh, people just, um, the thing about it was that the recipes were simple. People could cook them. They could get the lovely fresh ingredients in their area. And here in Ireland, we can produce wonderful produce, actually, because we have such a good growing climate and lots of fertile soil and so on. And um, so when people cooked, the, they saw it on television, uh, and people would say to me, I felt like jumping up out of my seat and going straight into the kitchen to cook it. And then I tested <laughs> the recipes really, really carefully. So when people reproduced them, they tasted, you know, they were just as they'd seen on the television, and they tasted delicious. So people immediately developed a bond of trust with me as a food writer. And then after that, there were seven or eight others. So the, And then those uh, little paperbacks have been out of print for about... 10 or 15 years now and hardly a week went past without somebody telephoning me and saying where can I get a copy of Simply Delicious Food for Family and Friends or Simply Delicious Fish Simply Delicious whatever Christmas and I, they were, I'd say well, look, you'll have to look in a charity shop or something and um, then so I just thought my publishers then said look why don't you uh, why don't we publish 100 classic recipes from the Simply Delicious books. And uh, this, this is, we may even do another one of them. But So this went into the shops and in a small paperback uh, before Christmas and it just flew off the shelves again. There's a great nostalgic element to this as well. Oh, yes. Cause a lot of people would say to me, look, where can I get a copy of the book? Because I lent it to my friend and she never gave it back <laughs> to me. Or I want to give it to my 
daughter going to, or my son going to college and I can't find a copy of it or all the pages have fallen out and they're splattered with gravy or something <laughs> uh, because uh, they were sort of much used really which is for a cookbook author one of the loveliest things is when somebody comes along to you with one of your books that has obviously been dog-eared and well used then you know that you've made a difference to that family. You, you know the funny thing I remember is the, the, fir- the first time we interviewed you and we, and we had not met at this time. I think one of your books had like 700 recipes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, I've done lots of big tomes. I mean, the Ballymaloo, uh Cookery School cookbook that the people over here call the Bible, um, basically that, uh, you know, is it, I, I, I think there are 1,200 recipes in that. Then there's Grow, Cook, Nourish is another one which, I'm, yes. which took me nearly three years to write, actually. And I was encouraging people to think about taking back control over the food uh, that we eat because look at how quickly we've handed over really the power over our food choices really to the supermarkets and the multinational food companies. And I'm saying to people, look, why not if you have a a windowsill or a balcony or if, you know, even if you're living in the city, why not um, get a little seed tray and start to grow some of your own greens and and grow something yourself so you know exactly uh, what's in it or what's not in it, more importantly. And uh, and discover the magic of sowing a seed and growing something yourself. So it's grow, and then obviously lots of recipes for it, and then and then <coughs> really food that's going to nourish and keep you healthy and ho- and lovely and wholesome. And then there's a, there was another one called Forgotten Skills. That's another one uh, that I did. They were all big tomes. <laughs> so this yeah. one is just a hundred recipes. This uh, Darina Allen, the classic collection, is just a hundred recipes. So it's you don't need a wheelbarrow to get it into the kitchen, basically. <laughs> Here's what I always say about about Ballamaloo, uh, Darina. I may have said this to you before, uh, but I remember the first time we, we were coming down to meet you for the first time and, dri- and driving from Dublin, which is, which is a fair... Yes, we're which, down on, which, on, the, on the south coast, down east of Cork City, yes. So it's a, it's, it's a fair ride, and I remember saying to myself, I never said this, Anna, I said, why are we driving 250 miles <laughs> to go to a cooking school? <laughs> And then, and, oh. then, and then, and then, well, you, well, you might ask. <laughs> well, first of all, oh. first of all, we met Myrtle. Yes. Oh, how lovely that was. And, and, then, yes. and then we met you, and and you were that day. You were learning to make cheese. Oh yeah, oh. I forgot about that. So, th- so there's in so our there's, little micro dairy that we make butter, cheese, and yogurt, and exactly. all the rest of it from the milk of our Jersey cows. Yeah. Yeah, there's a picture of that going, that taking place on our website as well, by the way. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. good. Oh, yeah. Well, as you, as you probably know, Myrtle, uh, Alan, my mother-in-law, who originally founded Ballymaloo with my father-in-law, Ivan, the country, Ballymaloo Country House Hotel, uh, she died at the age of 96, uh, just late last year. And, uh, so, but she's left us an extraordinary legacy, which, uh, we are all doing our very best to continue. Yes, now we stayed there when, um, I guess we should mention anybody interested in going to uh, uh, Ballymaloo, um, there are accommodations that you can book, um, which are convenient to the school, right? Yeah. Right. Well, yes, but also Ballymaloo House, of course, is what you would call an inn. Uh, with 30 wonderful bedrooms in the middle of a 400-acre farm with a pot of lake and swimming pool and everything. So that's a lovely place to stay. And they were famous for their food and still are at Ballymaloo. 
um, long before the cookie school started in 1983, but Ballymaloo was the first country house hotel in the British Isles, and that started in 1964. Wow. And, and just, I don't know whether this is a sort of fun thing, but a couple of weekends ago I was in Paris for the inaugural uh, World oh, Restaurant yeah, Awards. I wanted to congratulate you, you on that. Yeah. Yes, of course. And, yeah. Yeah, and I Bally wasn't Malou sure House. I understand it. I mean, you got an award for the best trolley? Uh, yes, it was for the sweet trolley, uh, the trolley of the year award. I mean, these are the sort of the Oscars of food of uh, food awards. It's just like the top fifty restaurant awards, and this is organised. These are um, the uh, they're sort of almost like the alternative awards, which recognise different aspects of the whole restaurant experience. And the wonderful awards, apart from the trolley of the year, when there was a sort of tattoo-free chef, yeah, and there was a tweezer. <laughs> free kitchen yes. there. It was really wonderful. So we were thrilled to win that award. And it was also a tribute to Mark. We actually, uh, J.R., the arrival, the, the pastry chef at Ballymaloo, came uh, uh, with me to Paris to accept the award. And we actually dedicated the award to the memory of Myrtle Allen, okay. my mother-in-law, who started Ballymaloo, of course, um, the much-loved Ballymaloo house. Now, yes. Now, I have a question for you. You had a special event for, se- for several years, there was like an, an intersection of Ballymaloo food and, and literature. Yes, it was the, the Ballymaloo uh, Lit Fest, it was called, yes. a literary festival of food and wine. Yes, we did that. We didn't uh, watch the space next year. We're going to do another similar thing again next year. We did it for five years, then took a year off. And uh, so, but uh, that was an amazing event with the top chefs and food writers and, uh, yeah, um, uh, and from all over the world. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I wanted to come to that, but I guess well, we that, got the information too late to do sounds it. Like, sounds like we might have a chance. What, what time of the year is it going to be, Dorina? Well, it, we we had it in May. Uh, each year we used to have it around the middle of May. Uh, so we have to watch that space, but just make sure that you email me so we can uh, get the information to you in plenty of time. Right. Okay. Now back to this I'll, book. Make a no- I'll make a note of that, okay. yes. Okay. Back to this book. Um, now, some of these, uh, I think, have been updated. How did you handle all of that? Pardon me? So- sorry? The, What's the, the question? Reci- the recipes from the original. Yes. Did, didn't you do some updating or tweaking? Yes, a little bit, but and the whole book was re rephotographed again because you know the, the style, um, photographic style has changed a lot in uh, in twenty five or thirty years. But the most amazing thing was how the recipes stood the test of time so brilliantly uh-huh. um, that you know I'm, I'm just very interesting because the when they were rephotographing the book, the food stylist and the um, and the, the cook and photographer, you know, obviously they eat the food after they photographed it. And they kept saying, we do a lot of shoots, but my <laughs> goodness, these these recipes taste so, so good. good. And they read amazingly to the test of time. And so that was really, really nice to hear. The photographer It's lovely, isn't yes, it? Yes. And this is kind of food that people can actually cook themselves. And in the end, I really believe that the most important kind of cooking is home cooking. Right. I mean, there's no point in doing really complicated recipes in a book um, that would you need a, a whole team of people in a, in a restaurant, behind the scenes in a restaurant to do. You know, people want recipes they can cook easily themselves. And, mm-hmm. uh, that, uh, you know, and that, that they can do at home. And, and then the, impo- the such an important thing to 
to try to make time in our busy lives to sit down and share it with your friends and your family. And I often say, you know, we're a big family here, but I often say, you know, if you're, it's so important to sit down because even if you're only arguing, you're keeping the lines of communication <laughs> open. And sitting down to meals like that are what memories are made of, aren't they? I mean, yes. one has so many lovely, happy memories of, and for children looking forward to coming home in the evening or coming home for a weekend and to be able to sit yeah, down and, and, and enjoy it. You know, I mean, I, I know a lot of um, younger families that, that I encounter, um, they, they don't have that as a tradition. I don't, I yes. mean, this one friend, I mean, she's, I know her mother very well, and she and her husband, they're very affluent, they have a gorgeous house, but dinner is they just put things out on the sideboard, and uh, she has three kids, and the kids can wander by and take whatever they want if they feel like it. They can sort of graze or whatever, yeah. You know, I just, maybe I'm a fuddy-duddy old-fashioned, but I just think that that tradition or that custom is so worth hanging on to. If it's only one night a week or whatever, we usually have family supper, or we have four children, 11 grandchildren, and oh, we wow. usually have what we call family supper on a... A Saturday night, they, a, a little text nowadays goes out to everybody saying, we're cooking supper. And it's usually something like, a, you know, it's the food, sort of food that people will love to have, like a roast chicken with lots of roast potatoes and gravy and lots of um, a little bit, a little, a lot of vegetables and things, and maybe a wonderful bubbly apple or rhubarb tart or something. Just <laughs> something that all of the children from the, you know, from the little ones, uh, to the to the ancient grannies and things like me, uh, basically all can enjoy sit down and enjoy together. Yeah. Let me let me share something with you, Darina. We we sit down to dinner at the dining room table seven nights a week. <laughs> oh, well done. That's just what that's just what we do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's exactly what my husband and I do too, and it's even. Uh, I mean, I'm a great candle person. I actually light candles. I mean, that may sound so ridiculous to your uh, to your listeners, but you know, it makes a little occasion of the whole thing, and you oh, sit yeah. down and you go into a different place when you. I think it's so important as well to lay the table and have it all lovely. And you know, it's a little thing. Maybe you have a few little flowers. Now I really am sounding whatever, but this is what we do, and probably what you do too and then you even if it's only some lovely boiled eggs or a little omelet or something you make it into a special occasion and again this book is full of little recipes that you can whip up for supper um, and uh, enjoy and share you know I, I love your soups I've always loved your soups why is it yep. that your soups are so good because they're fresh um well, yeah, the, but uh, and also, you know, the well, the, yeah, they're fresh and and uh, um, was funny. It's always been kind of famous for its soups, but you know, the, we have the, lots of the soups in this book and other soups that I do are made on a formula. Uh, and this sounds like a funny thing to say, but it works so brilliantly. Say, for you, you use one cup of chopped onion, one cup of chopped potato, three cups of any vegetable of your choice, or it could be pea, beans, courgettes, or it could be suede turnip, or it could be spinach, or wild garlic at this time of the year, nettles. So one, one, three, and then five cups of stock, and that could be a vegetable stock, or it could be a chicken stock. And they, that recipe is sweat off the vegetables first in a little butter, and then 
um, add in the hot stock into it, bring it to the boil, cook it for a, uh, until the vegetables are soft, as, as short a time as possible so it doesn't lose its freshness. And then uh, salt and pepper, you know, obviously season it well. You can put spices in, you can put extra herbs in, whatever you like. And then ladle it out into a bowl. If you want to have lots of chunky bits in it, you can just ladle it straight into a bowl or, or whiz it up and maybe add a little cream to it and then you have a pureed soup. And then you can serve it completely unadorned or you can uh, you know put chorizo crumbs over the top of it or little croutons or drizzle it with parsley oil or pesto or something so you can make it all kind of chefy looking or it can be just a little simple soup so and then you have a delicious meal quite easily and make maybe three or four times the amount you want and maybe freeze some you have that for another evening yeah you you give notes on that freezing thing throughout the book Mm. which i think is very good i don't think people use their freezers as much as they should yeah. Well, nowadays, of course, and particularly in the U.S. and happening as was everywhere, you know, it's so easy to pick up uh, the phone and order something round. I mean, I live in the country in Ireland. That's not a possibility. Uh, and you'd be amused to hear that when I was in San Francisco there last year, at, at one point, I ate my first ever uh, – no, I'm not going to be able to remember – you know when they delivered the food round to your house? Yes. But what do you call it? Takeaway, takeaway. Uh, in, at a friend's house. At 69 years of age, I ate my first uh, takeaway. And there we were with little boxes on the table with all kinds of things in it. And I just thought, I, somehow I just thought, how sad is this? You know, eating out of boxes on a table. Uh, anyway, there you are. That's, I'm, I'm so old fashioned and whatever. But, uh, you know, no, obviously, I agree with you. you know, that's, a, that's an option for you. But in the end, there's nothing like something homemade and fresh. And in a way, you know, it, this, that kind of food is what nourishes. And, uh, and, and then in the end, you don't need all the supplements. You just need that lovely food. And that can be your medicine. Well, listeners, I, I really think that there's so much in here that you just, you'd love. You just, uh, like, I mean, if you want the absolute essential Irish stew, it's, you have it here. Uh, if yeah, you want the yeah, Irish bacon. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just. Yeah, there's bacon and parsley sauce and champer called cannon, too. If you want something special for around St. Patrick's Day, that's our favorite. And oh then, yes. Uh, follow that with uh, rhubarb tart. I think you'll have the first of the rhubarb, won't you, for around St. Patrick's Day, the early rhubarb. That would be lovely too. That would be. And good. then there's lovely there, there's soups, there's green peas, or there's potato and fresh herb soup there, which is lovely. Or suede and ba- suede turnip and bacon soup. Do you call those rutabaga? We do. Yes. Yeah. That makes. Yeah, that makes a delicious soup. It's looked on as a sort yeah, of you like really kind of. Um, you said you like it. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's looked on as a sort of almost uh, you know a, a poor man's thing or animal food rutabaga. They're delicious. You can roast them and do all sorts of things, but it makes a delicious soup with little croutons and some crispy bacon and a little parsley oil or something. I like that one. Well, you have such good ingredients. There we are. I can't (laughs) believe, uh, looking back, that there was a time when when nobody really recognized the superiority of Irish ingredients because they're spectacular. But you've done a lot to advance that, and um, and, and, and I, I think there's nobody that really speaks as well for Irish 
ingredients, well, traditions. When, uh, I, I, but I think now, you know, when, be, when people come and from the U.S. and everywhere and visit us here in Ireland, you know, they are often absolutely astounded at how good the, the food is and how many options they have. And, of course, the word is well out about uh, the quality of the produce, all the lovely farmhouse cheeses, smoked fish. Oh, yeah. Uh, all of the, the wonderful breads, the soda breads and the and the salmon and smoked salmon and all those really, really good things. And, of course, the shellfish, too. I was going to so say So we're lobster. very favoured by nature yeah, <laughs> oh, over yes. here. And, yeah, we, we haven't, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, we don't, fortunately, we don't have a shortage of water, which is a, a great bonus now. So many parts of the world are in terrible state for water. It's yeah. awful. I mean, look at poor California. Yes. Well, now, let's... Uh I'm sure, I'm sure you have you have accumulated probably at least a dozen things to do since you started this phone call. <laughs> so we better, let, we, better, we better let you go back with it. Well, with it's, it. it's so nice to talk to you both again. Oh yeah, and I hope you're coming over. Yeah, and uh, for those of your listeners who've never been to Ireland, uh, you're missing out. So uh, uh, and now there's the Wild Atlantic Way, and there's Ireland's ancient East, and so many, uh, you know, all sorts of historical, cultural. Uh, not to speak of delicious things to discover. And, oh. the, and the and the URL is for for Ballymer. For, 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 for the whole program is cookingisfun.ie. dot ie. Oh yes, and I forgot to say actually that if people are in Ireland, uh, we're in East Cork, uh, just outside a little village called Shanagai, very close to sea. But we the school operates the whole year round. But people can just come in for an afternoon cooking class. If they ring ahead of time or look it up on, as you say, cookingisfun.ie, they'll see exactly what we're cooking at that time. So you don't have to come for, you know, three months or for, for a week or anything. It could be just an afternoon, join us, and then have a, a walk around. Oh, uh, we it's have quite beautiful. extensive farm and gardens here as well. So you could have a lovely walk around and, and see our hens and our chickens and our pigs and all that as well. It's sort of like paradise, listeners. Well, come back soon. Come and visit us. Yeah, and will. have a lovely St. Patrick's Day in the meantime. And you too. Thank you, Doreena. If Doreena Allen is Ireland's best cookbook author and Ireland's best cooking school owner... Uh, then the gentleman we're going to talk to next who's well acquainted with Darina and her family and Balamalu, but he's actually in Dublin, a man who many people consider, including us, by the way, uh, that he's Ireland's best chef. His name is Ross Lewis. His restaurant is called... Chapter One. Chapter One. And it's, it's the first place we had it for in Dublin? Yes, and we, we were running late. We, we, we were running late and we got stuck in traffic. So we arrived at Chapter 1 with all our bags. Oh, really? Cl- climbed down the steps into the hotel. Yeah. I mean, in, into the restaurant. And, uh, had a wonderful meal. We, we just saw him at Food on the Edge and in, 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 in Galway. And uh, now this interview is from when we met him for the first time. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. So we didn't record his comments. So he did a really nice tribute to Myrtle Allen. No, no, we didn't know he was going to, otherwise we would have recorded it. Yeah. But he, he's a very fine young man, a, a magnificent chef, uh, who cooked us a magnificent meal. And curiously enough, we came back next door the day after we had uh, dinner there, uh, uh, to discover not only was the restaurant there, but right next door is the Dublin City Museum, 
which houses Francis Bacon's studio, studio which is interesting. Re- really, ra- really rather remarkable exhibit because it's exactly as he left it. Any- anyway, here's Ross Lewis, not exactly we as he are, left it. Obviously, we love Ireland and all our Irish yeah. friends. Hello, all our Irish friends. Okay, <laughs> can, we, can we get to Ross now? Yes. Thoughtful, provocative, satisfying, and delicious are adjectives I could use to describe the meal we had last night, and I will. <laughs> we are at Chapter 1, a very fine restaurant and, and a beautiful restaurant, which we'll talk about in a little bit in Dublin, talking to chef owner Ross Lewis, who is responsible for this wonderful meal that we had. And besides that, you're fun to talk to. <laughs> Welcome to the menu, Ross. Well, thank you very much. I'm very flattered by that introduction, so uh, very <laughs> glad it's to be here. It's very true, though. Let's jump back a little bit. This is 20 years old. 20 years. Our 20th year will be complete this February. So uh, it's uh, one could say I'm, I'm pretty much, uh, uh, it's been a marathon, not a sprint. So, uh-huh. And I think that anyone who's achieved the level of success to keep a restaurant open 20 years knows that you have to continually evolve and you have to re- reinterpret what you're doing. And it's a very hard thing. So you need to take the long-term approach to that because I suppose... People always ask me, what's a successful restaurant? And I say, well, that's one that's open for 10 years. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> We've not been to, and I don't know that we're going to get to, the Writers Museum, which is upstairs. But it's so logical, calling it Chapter 1. But are there any other reasons why you have association with Chapter 1? No, not really. We were established underneath the Dublin Writers Museum, a very fine Georgian building, former home of uh, John Jameson, who's from the famous whiskey-making family. And we were actually not the first uh, operators, but we came in a year after the the first operators uh, had it and left. And uh, it was called Chapter One at the time. And as you probably know, uh, it's the same all over the world. When you have your liquor licenses and restaurant licenses all tied into a name, then you're slow enough to change them, especially if you had such a low budget as we had. So having not too much money, we came in here and we were only, uh, I think the zeal of youth brought me in here at the age of 26 and a half, I think. And we just worked very hard and put one foot in front of the other and a very long, slow, evolving journey to where we find ourselves today. So chapter one is the first chapter, and I think at this stage it's probably going to be the only chapter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it's quite a, it's a very rich chapter, let's put it that way. And it's a very busy restaurant. We've been here various times of the day, afternoon, evening, and it's always sort of jumping. Yeah, we're very lucky, I suppose, even given the current economic backdrop in Ireland, which is none too positive. We've been able to maintain a certain level of business uh, throughout the recession of the last three years. And I suppose having a very large clientele or custom base built up over 20 years, we were really, def- our, our ethos was defined by our location. And we're kind of, something that you may not know about Chapter 1 is we're kind of on the left bank at the moment. <laughs> so oh. 
it was not uh, a natural uh, resting place for a restaurant of this caliber. So we always found that we had to work extremely hard to attract people up here because it's a destination. And as the kind of end of the city wasn't favorable when we opened it in the early 90s, uh, the more favorable areas, of course, around Stevens Green, etc., which is where all the commercial activity and the high-end boutiques and shops are. So our ethos was defined by the fact that we had to work very hard, give people a warmer welcome, be consistent with with our product and uh, not rip people off. So we always maintained very reasonable levels of price. But what we did do is we increased the quality of what we had on offer and our service over 20 years. Your service is incredible, isn't it? It seems like there are people everywhere just yeah. trying to help and do whatever they need to do. Yeah, well, I think that Chapter 1, its success is I because it's a sum of the parts restaurant. It's not a temple to gastronomy. And, uh, you know, uh, so we we work very hard to make sure that the service is, is as important, I think, and a warm welcome is essential. And that is the kind of hallmark of Chapter 1, is that we do a reasonably high-end product that is consistent using quality Irish ingredients with a very warm welcome and an informal but friendly, efficient service. And it, you feel good being in this space. Now, I asked you, you apparently started out more bare bones than this. This is a, a really beautifully designed space. Now, you said that you actually had it totally top to bottom redone three yeah. years ago. Tell us about that. Well, uh, we were here 17 years, and for the last seven or eight years, we've been pretty much full all the time. And we came to a juncture where we decided that we would have to upgrade the product and change it and that would give us the advantage to uh, continue trading for the next 10 years uh, hopefully without doing too much else and we engaged in a renovation of the restaurant where we gave back part of the kitchen which is a vaulted Georgian uh, vault area and we give that back to the restaurant opened it up as reception and we opened up the restaurant a lot. It was it was a very compartmentalized because it's a basement, and uh, essentially when we opened it up, it gave it gave it kind of uh, the depth and dimension, gives something atmosphere. So after that, I said, well, that's great. The restaurant looks good. I've got to do the kitchen. Am I going to do the A job or the B job? So <laughs> I got carried away like all chefs do. And for me, the kitchen that I put up, I suppose, is the result of a lifetime's dream. I, you know, continually going to high-end restaurants throughout the world, Europe, etc., and seeing that the way they bring the design of the restaurant right through into the kitchen. And so we've opened up our kitchen, we've put a table in there, and we've softened the kitchen, because most kitchens are white tiles and ultraviolet lights and stainless steel, and it's a very industrial or male type of a atmosphere and backdrop, so we softened it with a nice chocolate brown tile and a lovely chef's table that has a, a yes, chocolate brown volcanic chef, rock tabletop and which oh, we you, loved it and yeah. it was you could we overlooked the, the kitchen of course but directly overlooked the pastry station yeah i wanted to know how many macaroons <laughs> man made <laughs> a lot is the answer so we we 
put up uh, what you would consider a reasonably high-end kitchen. I, I, I want, I, you know, I brought in natural materials. We brought in some marble and smoked glass and burnished copper and some wood, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the overall design, we wanted to, I suppose, achieve a restaurant that was uh, design of a restaurant is very important for the atmosphere of a restaurant, yes. and restaurateurs sometimes don't understand that. And so I was very cautious to move forward to modernize it, but to make sure we retained the atmosphere and made sure it was comfortable yet modern and elegant and I gave my interior architect a size 9 pain in the you know what (laughs) dogging her for three years and when I say to you over three years we did the restaurant and the kitchen and every other aspect from the cloakrooms the toilets we did it slowly and methodically and I did it with her holding my hand or, or, or me holding her hand which she wasn't too impressed with initially, but uh, when she understood the passion and where I was coming from and the commitment that I put into the restaurant, uh, we became particularly good friends. And I would say I put eight to ten hours a week for three years into the whole project aside from cooking. So very time-consuming but very rewarding at the same time. Well, I mean, the result is really stunning. So now who actually ends up coming here? Locals? Yeah, well, I suppose the hallmark of Chapter 1, and people have been asking me over the years, who are your customers? And I would always shoot back at them. We get a lot of people who buy their own dinner. (laughs) And that's very important. Because you get a lot of corporate people who don't. And in good times, you see them. And in bad times, like at the moment, you don't see them. So we have a combination of some businessmen. We're very close to the Gate Theatre and the Abbey Theatre, which is the National Theatre. And on a nightly basis, we would do between 40 and 50 from those theatres. Pre-theatre. Yeah. We get an awful lot of, we get an awful lot of people who come here once a year for birthday or an anniversary and I'm talking thousands of people and every night when I go out and I do the room you would be absolutely guaranteed that it would be between five and ten tables every night celebrating something and these are the people that we didn't exclude during the good times because we always had you were as likely to get as warm a welcome in Chapter 1 if you were driving a bus uh, than if you were a CEO of a big company. I have to say, Martin, my partner, is extremely democratic when it comes to a welcome and service. And so we have a lot of people who possibly save up and once a year they come here. So Well, I'll tell you, it's worth it. <laughs> yeah. um, let's talk about... If someone's coming here, what kind of food to uh, expect? I suppose the hallmark of our cooking is that, uh, you know, I, I think that my development has been as a chef on a very, in a very hands-on role, and a lot of it has been self-development. I, would have, I, I came to cooking at 21, and I was cooking only four years when I came in here. So as the man says, you know, you think you know what all of that, age but looking back at it and reflecting you know that you didn't know anything you know anything so um i mean did you have formal training or not just four years two or three different restaurants so the rest has been a journey of great self finding out and uh making mistakes and the experience of cooking and i don't know how it happens to other chefs but for me it came uh, there was a clearing in the last seven or eight years when i really started to understand 
exactly what I was doing. And I can now see food very distinctively, put it together instinctively, um, very often from an idea in my head, I can write down a complete dish and getting it right a lot more often than we're getting it wrong, you know. So, and we have a lot of local good produce. I've worked 20 years in developing a relationship with artisans and so they come to them my back door and so that my my biggest influence, I know this is very cliched, but it is, it is the people and the passion of the small producers that I interact with on a yearly basis. Well, we were talking last night about the, your global travels. So you're seeking out what the rest of the world is doing. Yeah. You said you were just recently at Noma and you're going to Osteria Franciscana and you've been to El Bulli mm -hmm. and you've been to Arzac and you've been to Mugaritz and I'm sure you have other places in mind as well. So you're, you're picking up ideas when you go Absolutely, there as well. Absolutely, yeah. What, uh, I, primarily influenced by how I have reflected on food over the 20 years and how I've moved on and, and the people uh, and produce around me. But I travel to see the products or the great restaurants of the world of the great chefs some of which we've just mentioned but what it gives me is it gives me um, stimulation yes. and there's no case for any chef I think at, at my stage of the career where you're going to go and copy what somebody else right. is doing but you get enlightenment you might see a system of service you might see anything from crockery the technology how, how, technologically how they put their food together And of course, at this stage, for me, it's it's reasonably easy to disseminate that and to understand what they're doing. And so I'm taking away a lot of inspiration. And I, su I suppose some ideas in terms of style of ideas as opposed to the substance or recreating what they're doing. And that's very important. But as well, for me, I would work very hard. And one of the aspects of this business I look forward to, one is the, I love the great large food family and I'm basically a very you know I come from an agricultural background and I love food the terroir food and the people involved in food because they're so passionate and I often say to people I say you know people might go to a restaurant they say you know I can buy that bottle of wine in a in a store for x amount and no. I say yeah but you know they're not going to open it for you and lay a table <laughs> and put the silverware down etc and the difference between buying food in a restaurant and buying it in a store is that there's an emotional exchange in the restaurant and the emotional exchange starts when you first ring the doorbell and somebody greets you right through to uh, escort you back out uh, hopefully having you paid the bill to uh, to the street. And as I say, we give a lot of emotional exchange to our customers. So what I love about dealing with the great food family and the great producers and small people is that they're passionate. And I need that emotional exchange to support me because I give a lot of it to our customers. And so that's very important. You do, and you're so, you're so warm. And But the thing that intrigued me the most is your dishes are so intricate and so inventive. And I said to you last night, how do you, where does this come from? How do you get all these ideas? And you said that your mind was going all the time. Absolutely, yeah. And you're dreaming of, of recipes. You know, Peter asked you if you kept a, a little pad next to the 
do your bed so you could get up in the middle of the night with an idea and you said yes <laughs> absolutely i mean uh, my wife would uh, find various uh, dishes strewn around the house from uh, places like the bathroom to the bedroom cab- the table side the breakfast table etc etc but i i suppose you 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 know somebody said to me something funny years ago and you know it said like out of routine comes innovation and and there is a sense of that because when i the routine for me is that dealing with artisan food producers and somebody rings me and said i'm coming in with sweet corn for six weeks or i've got damsons i've built up once i have all this store of produce around me and then thinking about how they interact and so i'm looking at what's around me and i'm thinking okay flavor combinations that work so you just really you're working on that all the time. Uh, you're broadening it out. And I just, it's something that's, that gets easier for me. Now, at, at the stage I'm at in my career with the experience I have and the hindsight than what it did 10 or 15 years ago. I don't know how it is for other chefs, but that, that's how it is for me. And I, I would consider that at the moment, you know, uh, in terms of uh, putting together food and dishes, I would say this is my, probably my peak if there is such a thing. I feel great. I feel I can go on for some more years. Um, I'm, I'm still young. But I, I have to say that I, I feel it's the strongest that I have been professionally as a well, chef. Well, this is strong. Absolutely. Can you pick just a few dishes that we can sort of run through for listeners? Which of these would you start with? Well, I think the uh, you started last night with the flavors tomato. So I mean, with the salted damsons, what I do is, you know, I, I, you know, we don't, we, we don't have a calendar or a clock, but we have the seasons, and I know what uh, time of the year it is from what comes in, and this time of the year you've got great tomatoes. So taking great tomatoes, you say, okay, you know, we, we're going to play with some flavors of tomato. So on the bottom I have a, a raw tomato consomme that has been slightly set with gelatine, and then we have on top of that we've got some uh, the middle of some uh, small cherry tomatoes some dried tomato we have got some uh, salted damsons and damsons are almost like a wild plum we, they're we, very popular in, yeah, in the UK okay and we salted them but it's slightly sweet but more acidic so I like the way that flavor combines with the kind of the, the acidity and the sweetness of tomato. We brought some coriander in there because it pretty much goes well with tomato. Now, that was the, not the seed, but the fresh green cilantro. There was, there was a tiny little micro herb of coriander that was three pieces, and there okay. was also um, some coriander oil. Oil, okay. Oil, yeah. And I have uh, some fried onion bread, which we use here as one of our breads that we yeah, use Yeah, you make night. all of your own breads, make we all should our own say. Breads, and right. we, we just, we went crazy over your dark brown the bread. Brown bread, soda bread, yeah. So well, that's soda bread, the brown. Yeah, it's oh, soda, our traditional Irish soda bread, which is... Well, that's you know, why you, everybody you, loves it. it yeah, you've like got to serve it in I mean, I've had soda bread that doesn't taste like that. <laughs> you got to have soda bread in Ireland. You know, It's one of those breads you just have to serve. Uh, people come to Ireland and they're like, yeah, where's your soda bread? Soda <laughs> bread you know, and that's the way it is. So we do three. We, we do, do a very nice whole wheat sourdough, a soda bread, and uh, an onion bread. It's a kind of a, almost a meat pan with onion in it. And uh, So that's where that bread comes from. We're obviously reusing, reusing from that, slicing it thinly and just cooking it in some clarified butter. So I have a slight dusting of yuzu salt over that. And yuzu as you know, is Japanese yuzu. It's slightly fragrant, almost citrusy, lemongrassy, and uh, 
So it adds a, that that adds another dimension. But essentially, there's also a little bit of creme, Irish creme fraiche from West Cork that we flavoured with tomato essence. So you have that creaminess. So you have the the clean acidity of tomatoes, the saltiness, the damsons, the sweetness of tomatoes, a little bit of cream uh, flavour in your mouth from the flavoured creme fraiche, and then you have coriander. And then just for a different texture, obviously, you have the dried and fresh tomatoes with crunchy brown bread. So it's all I decorated with little porridge flowers. Yeah. You know, well, truly. And, 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 and all of that, listeners, is four bites. <laughs> <laughs> Delicious. So, yeah. so at the end of the meal, there was more substantial. Uh, you had uh, something that was uh, two things that were really exciting. The, uh, some lamb. But yeah. some very special lamb. Tell us about that. Well, we have uh, here in Ireland an area of Ireland called Connemara. It's a province or a county, and it's there in the northwest. And it's a particularly hilly and barren uh, uh, region, and it's no better uh, place, I suppose, than to let uh, sheep graze the mountains. So we have a, a, an Appalachian. Uh, they're working on a kind of an AC, an Appalachian control A for Connemara Hill lamb, which is basically a lamb which uh, are allowed to roam the mountains and they eat a lot of the very lush green grass and the scrub. And so the season for them starts a bit later than our traditional lamb and uh, that starts in, in July and runs through to December. And it's... Um, a smaller, leaner lamb, but has great, great flavour. And, of course, Ireland is, I suppose, known as a grass-based agricultural system. And uh, if you can have the best grass in the world, then you should be able to have some of the best lamb and beef and dairy, butter, milk, best milk, you can have the best cheese. So, you know, that that's the kind of uh, food landscape in Ireland, along with the wonderful fish we get from the west coast of Ireland, amazing shellfish etc etc so we're not like the mediterranean countries where everything grows above ground but you know that's why our cooking is rooted in root veg and lamb and beef and etc etc so this lamb dish is um the rump of it is uh well cooked uh under vacuum seal with some hay and rubbed with garlic oil the neck is uh, cooked for 12 hours at 90 degrees in its own juices. And we bring that together on the plate. The rump is cooked till pink. The neck is glazed and the sauce is a pickled garlic sauce with a light lamb jus is monted with some garlic oil and pickled garlic juice with some chopped pickled garlic. You have some uh, carrots cooked in honey and black pepper, caper sprout cream, and we bring that all together with a smoked champ potato, which is very important because it acts as some Something that mops all the other flavors together, and it's just a nice, earthy, rustic, flavorsome, homely dish. Wow, it's absolutely delicious. <laughs> I, I wanted to mention that we said, of course, all the bread is made in house, but one of the things we had was selections from the charcuterie trolley. Yeah, and we should mention that. Almost all of your charcuterie is done in-house as well. Yes, absolutely, yeah. In our endeavor to keep the service staff, put them in part of the lineup and make sure that, you know, I I think that what happened to the chef some years ago, they kind of, they they made the waiter just a plate carrier where they just asked to take a plate from the hot plate to the customer. And we decided here a long time ago, because we used to do a lot of Irish coffees at the table, that we need to do more restaurant service, that it's interesting for the customer. It's part of the theater. That's why we have, a very large, lovely Art Deco uh, silver 
trolley uh, that we use for maybe uh, main courses for two, such as uh, you know suckling pork, etc. Which came out of the Savoy Hotel. It was built in 1948. We have wow. a bread trolley which we carve the breads in the front of the customers. We do Irish coffees in the front of the customer. And the one of the additions was the charcuterie trolley. And we thought it would be great to be able to make our own charcuterie and serve three or four or five different types of charcuterie, some hot, some cold, with their own accompaniments off a trolley to the customer in the table and uh, the table at the restaurant and it has worked out to being very popular and I suppose it's become one of our signature dishes and last night you had on that you had a pig's trotter boudin which came with some green raisins which are in a Madeira jus had some potted ra- rabbit and ham which has been cooked down with in pinot gris and jellied with mace and foie gras terrine with a Madeira jelly on it and some ice wine verjus gel and then you have some goubine salami which had celeriac remoulade in it and that's made the only thing that we don't make here is made by Fingal Ferguson in West Cork so very fine one of the first very fine artisan salami makers in Ireland it's all served of course with a toasted sourdough so if for somebody who likes to eat their dinner in the middle of the day, that's for sure. <laughs> You've got to have a serious appetite, but it's uh, it has nice kind of homely, diverse flavors, and uh, everything has a, a different accompaniment, and people really enjoy it here. Well, can't tell you, Chef Ross, how exciting dining here is. For us, it was very exciting. It was sort of the, the top of the... Of the week, I would say, very clearly. And I wish we could be back here again <laughs> frequently. Well, you're welcome anytime. <laughs> well, thank you also for taking time to talk to us. And no hopefully our paths will keep crossing. Absolutely. May I say it's been a pleasure meeting you both. And uh, I know last night we had one of those great congenial, convivial food family chats that you can only have with people who have the kind of passion. And those people are normally the people involved in the food business and uh, long may that last and thank you very much for coming podcasting services for on the menu radio are provided by asp station www.aspstation.net Okay, and this wouldn't be a celebration of the Irish count if we didn't have <laughs> what what they call it a, a drop of the hard stuff. <laughs> so, so it was just a, a few weeks ago that a, a, a silver-tongued Irishman called Phil Duff came whizzing through town to introduce Pittsburgh to Napogue Irish whiskey and to a particularly fine specimen of it being 18 year old. It was Nepal, beautiful. Beautiful, Nepal, beautiful. Irish whiskey. So Phil is something of a historian of the whole Irish whiskey business. So he gave us the story first of the history of whiskey in Ireland and then a little bit about his employer, Napogue, and then we got a taste. So what a great way to finish up today's program in celebration of St. Patrick's Day than to have, as I said earlier on, a drop of the hard stuff. And I hope you will have one with us. Okay, so we, we hope you enjoyed being part of our celebration of the glorious 17th of March. 
And we love Ireland as we We love Canada. Ireland. Yeah. We'll, 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 be, we'll be back there. We'll be doing another program on Ireland. Wouldn't be surprised if it's quite soon. In the, in the meantime, uh, the top of the morning to you, the top of the afternoon to you, whatever it is, uh, we hope you had a wonderful day and that you'll continue to enjoy your exposure to all things Irish. And until next time, same time, same place, we will say... Bye-bye.